Father, this, this past week has been, it's been a joy for some. It's been heartbreaking for others. Some of us this past week have not, we have not felt a thing. Regardless of how we feel, we desperately need you. We desperately need your word. Every moment of every day last week, you kept us. All good gifts we received were from your providential hand. Not, not only the thousands upon thousands of heartbeats that you gave to us, the air we breathed, the water we drank, the food we ate, all of it a gift from you. And, and all of it points us to you. Your son spoke to us of the spirit like a wind. Your son taught us what truly, true daily bread is. Your son provided for us water to satisfy eternal thirst. And greatest of all gifts was your son's sacrifice on the cross for us. This gift is why we gathered together this morning. His death is why we can love one another with your love. Your love is secure in our hearts because Jesus rose again. Because he is well and alive, your people are too. Would you align our hearts this morning to be so fixed on your word that we cannot escape the gospel's power? This is your life-changing news for sinners like us. Would your spirit turn us away from any boastful desires and onward to godly desires? God, we need you to do this. We, we are incapable without your spirit's help. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, as we, as we look at Psalm 10 this morning, I want, I want us to consider some lesser known things about the Psalter on, on the whole. So, so as many of you know, there are five books uh, within the Psalter. Book one of Psalms goes from Psalm 1 to Psalm 41. If you turn to Psalm 41, you'll see that book two starts at Psalm 42. These five books reflect the number five from the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So it's like a head nod to the first five books of the Bible. And what isn't as commonly known is this. There's a good deal of structure within the Psalter itself. And this structure, the, the purpose that it served was to, to give the people, people of Israel a memory aid as they work through all 150 books, books in this book of praises. So, so if you're an ancient Israelite and you heard something like, all right, a reading from Psalm 2 and Psalm 18, you would have understood some of the structure of, Hebrew, of, of the Hebrew Psalter and you would have gone, okay, that's a, that is a messianic psalm. We are about to learn about the one that God has promised to deliver us. He will be our king. So, so Psalm 10 isn't just the, the next psalm after nine. It, it is that, but it's more than that. It's a part of the Psalter's structure. So you have, you have Psalm 1 and 2. They introduce key concepts of the whole Psalter. We have God's law and God's Messiah. Warren Wearsby likes to say God's plan and God's man. Psalms 3 through 7 are psalms of King David, written in, in spiritual crisis, whether, whether personal or national. Then we have Psalm 8. It was also written by King David, but it, it takes a break from the lament, and it's a creation psalm. It, it's, it's 
praising God for creating this world and for making us in his image. Psalms 9 and 10 continue on with David's laments, his prayers in times of trouble. And what's interesting is that many scholars think that Psalm 9 and 10 were originally one psalm. There are several reasons for that. I'm going to briefly mention those. One is that quite a few old Jewish translations had Psalm and 9 and 10 together. So there's, there's historical precedent for it. Number two, Psalm 9 has a superscription that states the author and the type of psalm. It's a psalm of David. Psalm 10 does not have that. But then we see, if you were to look on Psalm 11, 12, 13, 14, so on, they all have that superscription. Accuse us in, maybe, maybe these were originally together. And then, and then the third reason, the main reason I, I, I mentioned this, is that Psalm 9 and 10 form an almost complete acrostic. The acrostic psalms start with the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, and then they have another uh, poetic line, and that's, that's followed by the next letter of the Hebrew alphabet, until you get to the end, and you have the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Okay, so Psalm 9 starts with Aleph, first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, uh, and then the next poetic line we see Beit, and then at the end of Psalm 10, we have the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is Tav. Okay, so, that, so for us, don't speak Hebrew or read it, uh, Psalm 9 would start with A and then end with Z. You can also have partial acrostics, so they might be A to G or, or T to Z or some blend of A to Z, but you see an inherent structure if you're reading the original. So that's Psalm 9 and 10. They form an almost complete acrostic. So, so that said, the main reason why we have the split, all of our Bibles have, have uh, the, the separation, is there's a strong pivot. There's a strong pivot in Psalm 9 of a very firm hope in God and his presence and his care for people. And then we have Psalm 10 verse 1, which is which this, this question as to why God is not near. Okay. So I want us to just consider how this, this structure helps, helps us, all right? Psalm 8, as we said, it's a, it's a creation psalm. We have Psalm 24 and Psalm 33 are also creation psalms. Psalm 24 starts, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm 33 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. So we have three creation psalms. We have Psalm 8, 24 and 33, and then they are all followed by acrostic psalms. Psalms 9 and 10, 25 and 34 are all acrostic psalms. So you have, you have creation to acrostic, okay? And while, while reading about this, while I was reading about the, just the structure of the Psalter and, and studying and preparing for this, uh, a while back, and I asked my wife what she thought the, the purpose was behind these creation psalms that then lead into the acrostic psalms. Like, why, why that? Why that? Uh, her, her response, a bit of a paraphrase, she said, since Psalm 8 is about God's creativity and making everything, wouldn't the acrostic show God's creativity in the written word? I thought that was a helpful answer. I haven't told my wife, but I've enrolled her in advanced Hebrew studies this fall, so I, haven't, I didn't do that. Um, uh, her response was nearly the same as the author that I was studying. He said this, he said, could it be that the Psalms describing the creativity of the Lord in his shaping of the world 
find a reflection in the creativity of the Lord and the shaping of his word. Psalm 8 to 9 and 10, 24 to 25, 33 to 34, from God's creation to his creativity. God's, God's ordered world moved David and the psalmists to order their words. God spoke the world into existence, and it was good. God also spoke his word, his written word, into existence, writing the spanning thousands of years with many different genres. We have narratives, parables, genealogies, poems, prophetic writings, eyewitness testimony to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. An amazing, an amazing gathering of ancient writings, all moving us to what? To find salvation in Christ, to bring glory to our creator. So, so from Aleph to Tav, from A to Z, God created the world and it was good. At the end, when the Alpha and the Omega, when the first and the last, when the word made flesh judges this world, it will be good. So, so perhaps, like an ancient Israelite would have, we, we find where we're located in the Psalms this morning. So, so let's see what God has spoken through his creatively ordered word. Look in Psalm 10. This is our outline for this morning. Here's a breakdown of Psalm 10. Verse one, speaking to God when he is not by our side. Verses two through 11, the wicked get their way. Verses 12 through 15, the righteous warn the wicked of their ways. Verses 16 through 18, speaking to God when he is not by our side. Look at me, look with me in uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? David here asks what, uh, what many a God-fearing Christian wouldn't dare to ask. God, why, why do you hide yourself? Hide God? How, how did this make it into the Bible? I'm doing my preparation. I'm like, wow, that's, that's very blunt, David. I, I thought hiding was for the, the deceived Adams and Eves of this world that were just trying to cover up their sin. It doesn't sound like something God would do is hide. This, this comes across almost accusatory against the all-present God. And just, just last week, we, we had an excellent sermon where we saw in the text when the applications was to be very careful about how we talk to God. But verse one's questions are intentional. The, these questions, they, they incite an intentional escalation of what David is dealing with. David was God's king whose son was out to kill him. The, the, the word trouble that David uses here, it, it can mean death, or at the very least, destitution. David is on the run. Absalom, his son, wanted blood, but he ended up tasting his own. Absalom went on a manhunt to kill David and David's followers, but he ended up becoming a target himself. In Psalm 9, David rightly laments the loss of his son. Psalm 10 continues in this theme of loss, and it brings questions to the only one who could have prevented 
such devastating loss. God, why, why do you choose to intervene at some times and then not other times? Why did you choose to not intervene when I really needed you to? David cues us into something incredible here. There's at least a seed of faith in these questions. Did you pick up on that? Sometimes it seems like God is not there. Fatal diagnosis. A family member or a friend just ups and walks away from the faith. An untimely death. But if God was not there, if God is not here, then this, this question makes no sense. There's zero point in asking this question at all. David does not address the open sky. He doesn't address his friends. He doesn't address himself. He addresses the living God. In his, in his discouragement, in his questions, he's not without hope. This leads us to some applications. First, to be a Christian is to be encouraged where there is no encouragement. To be a Christian is to be encouraged where no encouragement is observed with our senses. John Calvin once said, if we measure the help of God according to our senses, our courage will ever fail us. There will be times where there are little to no encouraging signs around you. But God has given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us his people. And these are sufficient for any great suffering or trial that we have faced or we will face. We can have nothing left. It can seem like God has hidden himself. But we trust in the way he rules the world, and we trust in his care for his people. Next, Christian, you are in God's will when you ask God the questions given to you in his word. It's a relief to know that. The Psalms ask some very hard questions. You are in God's will when you ask God the questions that he has given to you in his word. If you're, if you're taking notes, I, I don't want you to put a period on that. The comma's intentional. You go, I'm just going to fix the slide for the pastor. I'll put a period on it. No, the comma's intentional. We are coming back to that. Christian, you are in God's will when you ask God questions, the questions that he has given you in his word, comma. We will come back to this. And until then, we see that verse one sets the stage for the next 10 verses. Why does it seem like God is far off? Well, God seems far away when the wicked get away with wickedness. If God, if God fully appeared, then human pride would be just a thing of the past. It would be gone. But it is often that the wicked get away with getting their own way. Look in verse 2 through 11. The wicked get their way. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. 
Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Do you see why David asks those questions in verse 1? God, I know you. I know your character. If you were here right now, evil would just be exiled. You hate it. You cannot stand the sight of it. It would be gone. That's why David asks the question. Verses 2 through 11 show us something that's just, it's just no secret. Sometimes we wonder, man, how did that person get away with that? How did they get away with that? It's no secret, unless you haven't read Psalm 10 before. It's no secret as to how the wicked get their way. Some seek a life of power, others prosperity, others ease. And, and there are three main ways that the wicked seek to get their way. One, they center their life on what they want above what God says. Two, they live out the 20-plus characteristics of the wicked that we see here in these 10 verses. And then three, they say and live these three man-centered mantras, this man-centered creed. Psalm 10, 2 through 11, it, it exposits evil. We would do well to consider the word here and, and to live in just devout, God-honoring opposition to these qualities. So one, what, how did the wicked get their way? They center their life on what they want above what God says. This, this is a given. Men and women, we were all born into sin. We have a sin nature. By nature, we, we do not like God. We, we are against him. We have denied him. We have defied him. It's, it's just our frame of reference for everything. We, we can't help but be self-centered. How can I satisfy my desires on my terms? So one, they self-center their lives. They deny God. Two, they live out the 20 plus characteristics of the wicked listed here. Look at verse two. There's arrogance, it's pride, a pursuit of the helpless. That the wicked believe that they are better than others. That, that somehow, even though they're made in the image of God, just like the next person, they are somehow better than others. They're willing to use people as a stepping stone in their life. They think it's okay to manipulate other people to get ahead. Verse three, they boast about what they want in life. They're, they're greedy. They call down a curse on God and renounce him. And for, for those of us that have, if you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, this is, it's stunning. It's just stunning to read this. The wicked would rather live in, in ease and luxury than, than to bless God with their lives. We see it every day. 
And you know, one, one modern way of renouncing God, because what, what do we do? We don't, we don't go outside and just say, God, I deny you. I renounce you. Maybe some people do, uh, uh, but, but many of us don't. What, what is it? What is it? We say this, you just need to love yourself. You just need to focus on you for a while now. What, what a trap that is. What a trap that is. The wicked are good at telling each other that we are our own gods. The school of the wicked, they teach verse four, be proud of all you do. Seek out those who will remind you that, that you just don't, you don't have any use for God. God, God is more like a, a crutch for the feeble-minded person who just can't, can't withstand the harsh realities of life. Verse five, what does the wicked do? Prosper yourself, puff at all your haters, says the wicked. That the world encourages us to dwell on what, what, apart from Christ, we want most in life. Might be good things, whether it's family, fame, power, fortune, freedom, sex. You can have it all, says the wicked. You can just pull a, an, an Oprah or an Osteen, right? Open yourself to all kinds of demonic spiritualism. And, and when you're rich off your version of God, then, then you, know, you can be generous and you can be kind and you can be a good person as long as you get your way. Verse seven, curse, deceive, and oppress. The, the evil man's mouth gets increasingly good at curses, no blessings, deceit, no truth, oppression, no support. The, the evil person knows they're on the right track when when they simply do the opposite of what God does for his people. God blesses us. God is kind. He tells us the truth. God supports us. This cursing here in verse seven, it's, it's not saying a, a bunch of bad words, okay? It's not, it's not cussing. It's cursing is like an oath that's gone south. With an oath, if you uphold the oath, you are blessed. If you do not, you are cursed. And the wicked just call down curses and deny any oaths that they, that they would hold to. To deceive is to have crafty speech, to, to obscure the truth. The, the word for oppression here has its root in a word meaning to tread underfoot. These are, these are snake-in-the-garden-like actions. The, the oppressor seeks to take God's curse against the snake, against Satan, take that curse and then apply it to believers. When, when David exposits evil, where do you think he finds his source material? From, from the serpent, who did what? What did the devil do? The devil cursed God's blessing. He tricked God's creation using God's word, and he tries to reverse God's curse on him by treading others underfoot through oppression. Verses nine, eight through nine, ambush, murder, hunt down the helpless, lurk and seize them by luring them into a trap. Uh, prosperity preachers fit this mold all too well. If you give to God, God will definitely make you materially happy and rich and wealthy. Uh, the devil and his preachers are very good 
at giving people what they want and leading them straight to hell. Verse eight, his appetite, he has a hunger for harm. He loves corrupting the helpless and the kind. He has a victim mentality. He's not a victim. He, he is on the lookout for victims that he can victimize. Verse nine, he, he acts like some, some ravaging demonic lion, bloodthirsty, lust drunk, setting a trap for the powerless. It's, it's all too easy for the devil to use the wicked. What, what does he need to do? He just finds the, the, what I call the, the lowercase just people, not capital K justice, what is right, what is wrong, lowercase just people. I, I want just a little more. I just want some respect. I, I just wish, if I just had this one thing in my life, then I'd be set. The lowercase just wicked then go out and make disciples who also just want a little more of this or that. It can be nice things. It can be pleasant things. Anything but a desire for God. Third, the wicked get their way. They, they say and live these, this man-centered creed. Look in verse four. All his thoughts are, there is no God. This is the first line of the self-made man. God does not exist. I create meaning for myself. And, and there's no one around who can do it for me. It's like, it's like I'm, the, I'm the captain of my own soul, the master of my own fate. Verse six, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. All right, what does he say? I will do whatever I can to get as much as possible, to get as much power as possible. I, I deserve to be looked up to. I deserve to be admired. I deserve to have my thoughts and opinions agreed with and obeyed. Or, or I, I must do whatever I can to make my life as simple and easy as possible. I'll do whatever hard work I can now so I can just up and relax in retirement. No one can touch me. The, the proud convinces himself of an anti-gospel truth. If I, if I just keep working for me, I'll eventually get all I need and more, and I'll, I'll be able to get out of any trouble that I'm in. I, I am my own savior. Verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He's hidden his face. He will never see it. It's interesting. There's a, there's a threefold denial of God here. There's a denial of his omniscience, his omnipresence, and his omnipotence. There's a denial that he can see everything, that he is present everywhere, and that he has all power. His omniscience, God has forgotten, says the wicked. God doesn't know all things. It's a denial of his omnipresence. God hides his face. God isn't really everywhere. He can't track all of this. And a denial of God's omnipotence. He will never see God, God does not have the power to see because I don't believe he exists. In this, in this, the wicked get their way. So David's questions are relevant. If God was not far off from him, 
then the wicked, they wouldn't be winning. They wouldn't be ruling the world. They would be running away. Well, before we move on to see how the wicked are warned, I want us to consider some application of this text for us. The Psalms, the Psalms were teaching tools given to the people of God. In Psalm 10, 2 through 11, we are warned of rebellious tendencies of our sinful flesh. We, we looked at the 20 plus characteristics of the wicked person. We considered their, their three man-centered mantras. But, but think about it. Who was the original audience of this psalm? Israel, Israel didn't mass print Psalm 10 and just pass out leaflets to the nations with Psalm 10. Now, the original audience was Israel herself. And so, God's word warns the righteous to address their own rebellious tendencies. Any, any remnant rebellion in our sinful flesh, well, what is it? What is it? It's, it's an insane desire to have, just to have a distaste for God and God's ways. It, it's an insane distaste for God and God's ways. So we can ask ourselves, are, are, we, are we arrogant? Have we been underhanded with another? Do you, do you hide your sin? Do you, do you seek God only for what you can get out of it? Do, do I spend more of my time as if God won't have me account for it? God, do I take more than I give? So Christian, whenever you read of the wicked in the Bible, that, that's an opportunity to ask the Lord to humble you, to keep you from evil's deception. You know, it's, it's wonderful, the contrast between the righteous and, and the wicked, because we can just reverse what the wicked do to know what the righteous are to do. Psalm 10, verse 3, would sound like this. The righteous repent of ungodly desires. He blesses and acknowledges the Lord. Verse four would say, in humility, the righteous seek God. All his thoughts are, God is an ever-present help to his people. The wicked have lodged in their minds, there's no God, he doesn't see. What, what do the righteous, as we grow and mature in the faith, what do we get lodged in our minds? God is an ever-present help to me in any and every situation. Yeah. Well, next, the righteous warn the wicked of the way they are getting. Look, starting in verse 12. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hands. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you, the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Wickedness called to account. Around uh, 200 years ago, there, there's an American statesman if you're a history person, you know who Daniel Webster is. 
Uh, he was once asked this question. What was the greatest thought that ever entered your mind? I think he would think it's something you know, political. He was, he was a politician. He reflected for a moment and he replied, the thought of my personal accountability to God. So the righteous response to evil is broken down into four main elements. Let's look at these. First, the righteous cite the word of God. In verse 12, the righteous cite scripture. Previous Psalms use this citation of Moses from the Torah. So, so whenever the Israelites packed up and moved out to make camp elsewhere, what did Moses and Aaron do? They would uh, go to the ark and they were instructed to pray, Arise, O Lord. God, go before us, lead us, guide us in all truth by your word. David here asks God to act on behalf of his promise to his people. His starting point is always the word of God. Second, the righteous, the righteous response, the righteous cast doubt on the claims of the godless. Verse 13, why, why do people think that they'll get away with evil? Why do they think that? Why does the evil man renounce God? Why, why the reverse repentance? Why do the wicked think that they won't be held accountable? There are many skeptics of God. The Christian is skeptical of wickedness because, because we know its proper end. We know where it's heading. In verse one, there's a question to God about God's ways. It reflects in, in small measure faith in God. In verse 13, there's a, there's a question to all about the wicked's ways. It reflects doubt on wickedness. Verse 14, the Holy Spirit provides answers. How? Well, through, through recalling the character of God. It's this third element of a righteous response. The righteous recall the character of God. Look in verse 14. Look at all the things that God does. In verse 14, God sees he notes, he takes action, he helps the helpless, he fathers the fatherless. He sees and notes. God, God keeps an updated list of all evil deeds. There's another psalm that speaks metaphorically of, of God's remembering his people's trials. Many of us are familiar with this. He puts our tears in a bottle. Here, God, God metaphorically administrates and files away evil in a filing cabinet. Though the wicked lie to themselves and others that, that somehow God is missing in action, God has, God has ensured that no speck of evidence remains hidden. God takes action. God has and will take matters into his own hands. He takes action. He tracks teardrops and tracks down evil. He helps the helpless. He fathers the fatherless. God's, God's track record is a perfect track record. God rescued his people from slavery. He adopted Gentiles like Rahab the prostitute, Ruth the Moabite into his family. God, God always is able to save the least likely and the least wanted of people. Consider what, what one theologian has said of this. He said this, If the experience of God's fatherly favor is the greatest blessing which we can receive, let us not feel so uneasy 
at being accounted poor and miserable before the world. Non-Christian, you don't struggle with low self-esteem when you realize that you are not worthy of God. Despite all your unloveliness, God the Father will be a father to you who are spiritually orphaned. Any member here that you would meet used to be a spiritual orphan, and they now have new life with God, the Father, saved through his Son, secured by his Spirit. Fourth, the righteous pray for God's justice and trust him to act. We see this in verse 15. Take, take note of this psalm. As God's people, we are not blind to evil, but, but we're more aware of it than the evil person is because we see where it leads to. God, God's people are aware, increasingly aware, that God has not let anything slip his mind. Certainly not evil. Verse 15, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account. Now, throughout the Psalms, we find that, that a second poetic line can often illuminate the first. And what a way to disarm God-haters. When God calls a sinner to account, their, their supply lines to evil are cut. Their arm is broken. Their resources fall short. In non-Christian God, God has called you to account. And instead of striking you dead where you sit, he has spoken the power of the gospel through his people. Take Christ's account instead of your own. Be, be done with your sins. Trade them for true freedom from hell. Trade them for forgiveness of sins. Trade them for a fully alive life with God. Amen. Speaking to God, He's not by our side. Our final point. Verse 16. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that the man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. David asks the question in verse 1, and he answers it. At times, God seems far off, but by faith, we trust that he is near. Wicked men will still strike in terror, but not forever. There is still time for unbelievers to turn away from their sin and turn to the eternal king. And, and Christian, you know this to be true. In our own rebellion, we were given time to repent. So we know God is gracious to give that time to others. Yes. Isn't, isn't that why God refrains from just splitting open the heavens and appearing right now? Have you considered that God would hide himself out of his loving kindness? You and I, we want, we want God to intervene immediately when injustice recurs, occurs, right? We, we want that. It, but if God were to directly intervene in every single situation of sin and put an immediate stop to it, 
Just, just think that one through for a second. We, we would all be in hell. He is holy. He cannot dwell with sin. And so, how has God answered the psalmist this morning? God does, God does the unthinkable. I don't think the psalmist was even fully anticipating. God, why do you stand far off? E- evil is overflowing here. We, we need you. And what does God do? He sends his son to die, not for the righteous, not for the healthy, but for the sick, for the wicked. On the cross, Jesus took the blame for those 20 plus characteristics of evil. He he bore the punishment of the many God deniers, past, present, and future. God dealt a winning blow to human injustice at the cross by striking his son so that the helpless can be helped, so that the fatherless might have a heavenly father. In order to deal with injustice, Jesus was struck both by, both by man's terror and by God's wrath. Martin Luther wrote this. He said, God forsaking God What man can understand this? Earth has rejected him, and heaven has given him up. Told you we would come back to a a statement made, made earlier. Christian, you are in God's will when you ask God the questions that he has given you in his word. Told you to put a comma on the end of that. Christian, you are in God's will when you ask God the questions given to you in his word, and you will find the answer bound up in the gospel. You will find the answer bound up in the life, death, and resurrection of the word made flesh. Why did God stand far away? God hid his face from his son so that he would never hide his favor from us. We, We praise God for having stood far away. We magnify God for hiding How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Father, how deep is your love for the saints? It it is beyond all measure. Through the unjust suffering of your son, you have turned your ear to us. You have strengthened our hearts. Through the resurrection of your son, You have secured an eternal place for us where where the devil and his terrors dare not enter. The benefits you pour out on your people are are just unbelievably good. When we speak to you in this life, you, you are not here by our side. We have a greater reality. Your Holy Spirit lives within us. And you've spoken to us not, not through vague whispers, but here in Psalm 10, your holy word. As we sing to you, encourage our weak hearts. Strengthen our failing bodies. Help us to bring you honor now. Amen.